If you want to be involved in this kind of giving, this kind of generous giving that God wants for his people to share with each other and, and people that they don't know, then you first have to be called into a different kind of living. And so this topic this morning that I'm trying to tackle is so so vast and so important, and I have so many things I want to try to communicate. I want to, I want to begin by just listing several points. They don't necessarily fit together, and they're not necessarily out of the text, but I think it's helpful to have these points sort of in your mind. And then in the second part of the sermon, we'll just turn our, our, our attention to the text of 2 Corinthians. So the first thing I want to mention is that that the best help that I think you can get personally in terms of generosity, in terms of a different kind of living and a different kind of giving is to read a book by Randy Alcorn. It's called Money, Possessions and Eternity. It's not a little pamphlet. It's something that's going to take you some time. But I think if you just had had time just to read one book, Money, Possessions, Possessions and Eternity by Randy Alcorn would be the book that I would recommend. Secondly, in much more practical sense of how do you get a hold of your own finances? How do you live according to the budget? How do you how do you know what to buy and what not to buy? Just in that sort of practical, everyday um, sort of situation, I would say you should take the the uh, Dave Ramsey class that we will offer in January. It's a it'll be over a two eight week segments. So it's a uh, uh, time that we'll meet together in our um, discipleship training. And if you haven't been through that or if you haven't been through something like that, I think it's very helpful to just get some very practical ideas in terms of budgeting and that sort of thing. Second thing I want to mention is uh, this word tithing. Tithing, if you've been in a church community, is a very familiar word. It's an Old Testament word, which means giving 10% of your income to the Lord. Or maybe it means to, to, to your church or to Christian organizations, and the word means tenth. And so tithing in the Old Testament, we know, was uh, a practice. You see it in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham had gone off to conquer somebody, and he had gotten all these spoils. And when he was coming back, he meets this sort of strange character, this priest in Jerusalem called Melchizedek. And when he comes and meets Melchizedek, he gives 10% of his spoils to the priest. We also know that tithing in the Old Testament wasn't just a practice, it was a law. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy. It is separate to the Lord. So you might remember just in your study this idea of first fruits. When when the fruits coming up from the land, you would take the first part of it. You would take the first part and you would give it to the Lord. And part of that giving was to say, Lord, I'm trusting you that there's more coming behind. And you were to give 10% of what you had to the Lord, according to Leviticus 27. When you turn to the New Testament, interestingly enough, very little is said about tithing. Scholar D.A. Carson points this out by saying, No passage explicitly requires tithing following the death and the resurrection of Christ. 
So that creates this sort of uh, intramural controversy in a church of, well, is tithing sort of one of those things that uh, when we move into the New Testament, we are leaving behind, as you do some things in the Old Testament, are you bringing it forward, and now it's a, it's a law or a command that we should uh, continue to live by. And there's a lot of questions about that. And I would say that the Old Testament provides a pattern pattern that we should follow. 10% is a pattern, but I wouldn't say that it's a command. And I'll talk a little bit more about this, but I think the New Testament writers assume that a person who, who fully realizes the cost of salvation, an Old Testament believer, remember, they're just living in the shadows. They're looking forward to something that God's going to do. And now in the New Testament, you see what God has given. He's given his own son. And I think there's an assumption, and we'll see this in the text, that Paul thinks and the other New Testament writers think, well, once you've seen this, then your, your giving is, is going to be uh, more generous, not less. And so 10 percent, instead of instead of thinking of it as a goal, I'm trying to reach, I'm trying to get to 10 percent. I think the idea is that once you see the cross, then 10 percent serves as a platform in which you start and you move up from there. And so I think that's what we'll see here in this particular text. Most studies show that about 5 to 10% of born-again evangelicals, so one out of every 10 or maybe less, give 10% of their income. Most aren't on the platform. Third thing I want to mention, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And what I'm saying here, what the psalmist is saying here is that is that God owns it all. And the reason I say that is because regardless of your your particular view on tithing, it's very easy to adopt as, as somebody who's giving some portion of your money away that I'm giving 10 percent away or I'm giving some percentage away and that's the Lord. So I give my money to the church. Or I give my money to a charitable organization. I sort of separate that off as the Lord's and then the rest of the 90 percent or the rest of what I have is now that's mine. And I can kind of do whatever I want to with what's mine. And God can kind of do whatever he wants to with what's his. And the Bible is explicitly saying, no, everything is his. Not just 10 percent, but everything that's on the earth, that's in the earth. He is the owner of everything. And the picture that I have that comes to mind, I've used this illustration before, is like if you're in a grocery store and you're in the checkout line, of course, they have the candy, right, lining the aisles as you leave. And notice about what head height the candy is. It's about the head height of somebody who's five, six, or seven years old. And if you ever take your child to the grocery store, this happens every single time. You get to the checkout line, and they're staring right eye to eye at the candy. And they're saying, Mom, Dad, can we have whatever it is? And by and large, most of the time you say, no, we don't eat that stuff. It rots your teeth out, whatever your little thing is. 
But occasionally you get in line and you think, yes, today I would like some candy. And so you say, Zachary or Morgan, yeah, get whatever you want, like the peanut M&Ms, you know, because that's really what you want. So you direct your child to the candy that you actually want. And so your child gets the peanut M&Ms and and you pay for it. And then at the end, you know, you get the bag and they get the peanut M&Ms. And then what do you say? Hey, can I have one? And they meagerly squeeze one peanut M&M and give it away like they're giving away a piece of gold. And they give it to you and you kind of pop it in your mouth. Of course, you were hoping like for three or four maybe. And so you say, hey, could I have a couple of more? And what do they say? These are mine. These are mine. What do you mean they're mine? I just bought them. The reason you have the bag is because I paid for the bag and I put it in your hands. It's not yours. You're just stewarding these M&Ms and I'd like you to steward a few more over this way. But so often, as simple as that sort of illustration is, we think about that about our money. We think, no, no, I made this money. Now I'm going to shuffle off some percentage to the Lord. And if he asks me for more, I'm going to, uh, that, you know, that's mine. And the Bible is saying everything is his. And so when we stand before God Almighty, we're going to have to give an account, not of 10%, but every cent. Third thing, debt. Proverbs 22, verse 7. The borrower is a slave to the lender. And the Old Testament word used for slave here is E-B-E-D, ebed. And it means bondage. And so many people, I think, see a video like this and they, they're moved. They want to be a part of a story that's that kind of generosity, but they're, they're in bondage to debt. They're, not, they're really not free themselves and their resources aren't free. So when they encounter a conversation like this and feel like, oh, it would be just so great if I could, could buy a $100 food card for this person or I could put some wheels on their car, I could do something maybe smaller than the $10,000 gift, but significant to the person who's in need. They're really enslaved. It's like they've got chains all over and they would love to reach out, but they can't because they're in so much debt. According to one study, the average college graduate 2013 left college with a diploma and over $32,000 worth of debt. And so that same graduate leaves with $32,000 of mostly student loan and some credit card debt. They get out and they maybe get another credit card for emergencies that always happen because life is just one emergency after another. They get a car that they can't pay for, so they get a loan. And many Many people graduate and they're just enslaved to debt really most of the rest of their lives. They don't know how to live any differently. They just think that's the the normal way to live. And when God comes in and he's ready to move and he would want to use you, you can't. You're chained up in some way and you just can't make that move financially. Dave Ramsey says that student loans are so pervasive. They stay around so long. It's like having a pet. 
last point. If I had time, I think I could show you from the Bible that there's a biblical pattern for using your resources. And I believe that pattern is giving, saving, and living. That, that when, when you're being given something, and in the Old Testament, when, like I said, when the crops are producing, it's the first fruits that go to the Lord. So the very first thing you do with your paycheck or with your resources is you look for ways to give. That's the first step. The second step, according to Proverbs, the, the wise person understands that there are days of difficulty ahead. So you save for those days in case you reach one of those days. And then the third thing you do is you say, OK, now I've got to live. What do I need to live? So I, so I first give, I, I second save, and then I, I third, I live. And yet many live in the reverse order. They live and they have so much living that they're just barely able to save and then so their giving becomes really just a token amount again most studies show that the average church member gives two to three percent of their overall income well those are just some points that i felt like were helpful to make and maybe one of those primary, one of those preliminary points is one that God wants to bring your, to your attention today. But I want to also bring to your attention this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And the first thing I want you to notice is what the problem is. Paul's addressing a particular problem. And so let's look at that, chapter 8, verse 6. Accordingly, we, Paul and Titus and his in his group, we urge Titus that he as he started, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So they started something and now he's trying to get Titus to help them complete it. Verse 10. And in this matter, I give you my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago you started not only to do this work, but also you had a desire to do it. So they started something a year ago and then they had this great desire. And then in chapter nine, verse five. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you had promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift not as an exaction. So what was happening is Paul is traveling around. Uh, he's traveling around Greece. Corinth is in the south and the area in the north is called Macedonia. And he's traveling around and he's about ready to go back to the churches in Jerusalem. And the churches in Jerusalem are particularly poor at this point. And so he's decided, hey, these people have benefited from the gospel coming out of Jerusalem into their lives. And I'm sure they would want to financially try to help these poor churches back in Jerusalem. So he's just asking folks as he goes around, if you have an interest in helping out, would you please give and I'll take the money and I'll redistribute it to the poor churches in Jerusalem. That's what's happening. And a year ago, these people, this church in Corinth had said, yes, we have a desire to do it and we want to help out. But somehow they had lost steam and Paul could sense that they were uh, losing steam. He could see that this was the problem. And and maybe just for a few of you here this morning, that's 
really the place that you are. You sort of started the year and you you took an assessment in January or December and you said, hey, this year we want to start out and we want to move in this direction with our finances. But you had every good intention. You really had desire, but something life happened or something happened and just you've lost steam. And so maybe that's where you are today with the church in Corinth. And he can Paul can see, hey, their their promises are not matching their performance. And I think it's fascinating then to watch. Okay, so they've made a promise. They're not performing. So what's Paul going to do about that? How is he going to come beside this church and encourage their performance and their promise to be together? How would you do it? You're coming into the church. They've made a promise and they're not fulfilling that promise. And how would you go about trying to encourage somebody to, hey, let's get back on. Let's let's stoke that desire. Let's move in this direction. And I think it's fascinating how Paul attacks this particular problem. That's the three points I want to show you there uh, this morning. First of all, in chapter eight, verse one, Paul begins by showing a video. He really does. He has this verbal video and he's going to say, hey, before I address anything, can I just tell you a story? You know, your brothers in Macedonia, you know, you know, your northern brethren, the Corinthians are southerners. And so the southerners are are slowing down as southerners like to do. And the northerners are are they're giving. And I want to just tell you about their giving. And hopefully that'll start motivating you to look at yourself. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And then notice what he says. I want you to notice what they're doing. Paul says, verse two, these people are in extreme poverty. They they start in extreme poverty. The the places they live, the kinds of incomes they have are they're very poor. These are people that have to look up to to see rock bottom. They don't have anything. And these are the folks that are giving now. Notice the description. They overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave according to their means and beyond. They gave of their own free will. Verse three. There was there wasn't any coercion. In verse 4, they were begging us to allow them to get in on the giving. What a a motivational video. Just want to tell you a story about giving. And maybe just the story by itself will help you sort of reassess. Hey, hey, I, I know these people. They live in poverty, and yet they were able to give generously. And look at me. I, I have more than most of those folks. And, and maybe that would sort of stoke the fire of the church in Corinth to give more. So that's one of his prongs of attack is he, he gives this motivational speech from the folks there. Because the people in Macedonia, they understand this, that... That they weren't going to be giving from their generosity. They were going to be giving from their lifestyle. They weren't going to give from their overflow. They were going to give from their lifestyle. It wasn't assessing, hey, here's how much I need. And gosh, I guess I don't really need all that stuff. So I give. No, it's I need this stuff. What can I cut back on in order to be a generous giver? And I, I hope you've already figured out that. Better financial circumstances 
don't create a generous attitude. I hope you figured out that, or I hope you haven't believed, well, as soon as I reach this income level, then I'll be able to be a generous giver. That's not true. Generosity starts as an attitude of the heart. And so if you struggle to give $100 away out of $1,000, you are going to have a mighty difficult time to give $10,000 away out of $100,000. And you might think, oh, if I ever got to that point, I would have no problem. That's a lie. So these people didn't have much, but they were, they were generous. And Paul's using their generosity. He's using their story to try to bring his people in to say, hey, hey, don't be a person who's falling behind in your, your giving. Second prong of attack, chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap Bountifully. I mean, this is a principle that needs really no explanation. You understand if you're a farmer and you're giving out seed and you're casting out the seed, the more you cast out, the more likely it is that you're going to have a crop that that can produce. And if you give out less seed, you have less chance of a return. And Paul's just repeating something that's already been said many times in the Bible. One in Proverbs 11, one man gives freely yet gains even more. Another man withholds what he should give, and he comes to poverty. Proverbs 11. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds what he should give and comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. People curse the man who hoards grain, but blessing crowns him who is willing to sell. See, it somehow seems in our mind that if we if we held on to the things that we had, we would somehow be able to get more and more. And biblically, that's not true. Somehow God's economy is the the freer you are with your scattering, the more produce that tends to come back to you. Now, that might be money or it might be some other blessing, but doors seem to open for the generous heart, both the doorway between you and God and the doorway between you and another person. So God loves somebody who's giving cheerfully, not giving out of a command, not out of coercion. And finally... And I think this is the most important prong of attack. Paul gives a video. He gives a principle. And then notice this in chapter 8, verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty might become rich. Isn't it interesting that Paul says, I'm not going to give it as a command. See, whether he could do it from his apostolic authority, hey, I'm sort of the founder of this church and I came in and I brought the gospel, so I'm giving this sort of as a, a leadership command. He Maybe he could have done that. Maybe that's what he meant. 
Or maybe he thought, well, the Old Testament tithe really does apply to the New Testament, perhaps. And so now I'm going to hoist this on you and say, I'm going to give you this command. I'm going to command because that's what the scripture says. I'm going to command out of my apostolic authority. That might have been maybe your approach. When I ask in the beginning, what would you do to sort of light a fire underneath somebody? And you might have thought, well, I'll just give him a command. But notice that Paul doesn't do that. In fact, he says, I'm not going to give you a command. Because Paul understands sort of the working of the human heart. If he had come in and said, hey, I'm going to just give you this command and you've got to give 10%, he might have gotten 10%, but he wouldn't have gotten one penny more. And then there would have been all this discussion about, well, I'm supposed to give off my gross or am I supposed to give off my net? You see, Paul's not approaching it that way. He's coming in not with a command. What is he coming in with? The gospel. Because the law does not provide fuel. It only provides direction. We talked about this last week. The law can come in and give you direction, but the gospel gives you the fuel to run down this particular corridor of giving. And Paul understands that they know they should be giving, but somehow they've lost steam. They've lost fuel. And he understands I've got to inject some fuel into the life of these people in order for them to give. And he's going to inject the gospel. Not in a coercive way, but just in a reminder. You you do remember what happened to you, do you not? Christ himself, he had, which is why we read Philippians 2, he could have grasped hold of equality with God, but however he began to let go of some things, he let go of some things and he became a servant. So you and I who are poor could be sons and daughters of God. And so he pumps that fuel into the church. And he's saying, I I want you to remember the people in Macedonia. I want you to take that picture. I want you to have that video in your mind. I want you to know the principles that are set out in the Bible, that somehow what happens is if you have an open hand, if you have a scattering hand, then more things come back to you than if you have a hold of things that you say, I can't let go of this. And finally, I want you to remember the gospel. Never forget how he gave up everything for you. So that when you're asked to give and to give generously, then you're not giving out of a a command, uh, somebody standing up front and doing it with authority. Somebody is going to come know with the gospel and say, let's just remember how you benefited from the gospel. And once you sort of capture that, then let that be your guide for giving. You know, when you whenever you preach on money. It's been my experience, especially not as a pastor, you you bring somebody to church, you're like, oh, my gosh, why did I bring my friend to church the first Sunday? And it's on money, you know. But Jesus spoke more about money than he did almost any other topic. And I don't speak that much about money. It's just because it hasn't come up in the text that we've had. But I think Jesus spoke more about money because he understands the effect it has on our lives. And a lot of the effect is it has a blinding effect to see ourselves well. 
Paul understands that. So he's coming and saying, can you see the gospel? Now, can you be a generous giver? Let's pray together. Lord, we know just from a sort of a factual standpoint that we live in the wealthiest nation that ever has existed in human time. And no matter what our particular circumstances may be, whether we compared it to someone else in another country or we compared it to even wealth at another time, automobiles, air conditioning, grocery stores, dishwashers, washers and dryers, heaters, medical help. It's even beyond comprehension to people another time. And some beyond comprehension who are alive today and live in other countries. And you say to whom much is given, there is much required. And you have given us first the gospel. You have provided an inheritance that will never fade, never spoil. And on top of that, you've provided this incredible country to live in where opportunity is available for making money. And so I pray for myself and for the believers here that they would first have their eyes on the gospel. They would notice the biblical principles and practices of giving. And they would just hear a story. Hear a story about somebody randomly paying off some debt and a child being born into a new home. Lord, you're weaving these things together for your purposes and help us to not be enslaved, but to be free to move alongside your movement. Take now what we have, not just our finances, but our time, our talent, because it's all yours and use it for your glory. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.